Japan in the interwar years was wracked by economic and political instability, by the demands of making war across the sea in Manchuria and in China more broadly, and by no small amount of political violence as assassinations and attempts at a coup rocked Tokyo. How did the United States understand these developments? What did we do to maintain relations with the ever-shifting governments claiming to serve the divine interests of the emperor? Could we have been better prepared for the general war that ultimately came? Did we, in fact, see that war coming? It is a prescription for war, this Iraqi invasion of Kuwait. December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. The bloody experience of Vietnam is to end in a stalemate. We continue to face a grave situation in Iran. The we shall fight on the beaches, we shall fight on the landing grounds, we shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall never surrender. Hi, I'm Aaron McLean. Thanks for joining the School of War. I am joined today by Steve Kemper. Steve is a freelance journalist and author, and most recently the author of Our Man in Tokyo, an American ambassador in the countdown to Pearl Harbor. Steve, thank you so much for joining the show. Thanks for inviting me. So the, the book is a biography and, and a really detailed account in particular of the years that a man named Joseph Clark Grew spent as ambassador, American ambassador to Japan. So I want to talk to you about this very interesting man. And I also want to talk to you about just the interwar period in Japan and the, the politics and, and evolution of, of Japanese policy. So if we could kick off. Off maybe just who who was grew where did he come from what was his sort of social class and how did he end up in, in Japan when he did he was a, a Bostonian from a, an old Bostonian family wealthy Bostonian family Beacon Hill the North Shore in the summertime Broughton Harvard so uh, when he got out of Harvard he was supposed to go into business or banking following his father and his brothers and the idea bored him to tears so he went off on a, a jaunt to the Far East, hunting and hiking and hacking his way through jungles, getting malaria. When he came back, his father expected him to settle down in Boston and do something productive. And instead, he chose foreign service. He wanted to serve his country in foreign places. And instead of the cushy life that he could have had, he chose a life of what he considered adventure and service. He ended up in Japan because in 1931, Japan had invaded Manchuria. The army had invaded Manchuria without asking permission of the Japanese government because they wanted Manchuria's raw sources, resources. So it was obviously a hotspot on the globe. It was the hotspot on the globe in 1932 when Herbert Hoover, President Herbert Hoover, asked our best diplomat, Joseph Grew, to take the hotspot on the globe at that point and see if he could change the direction that Japan seemed to be heading. And before we, we talk about Japan, can I just ask, how, how did you come across Gru? Why did you decide to write this book? Huh. Maybe you're familiar with Eric Larson's book, In the Garden of Beasts. It's I, about, I know of it. I've never read it. Well, it's about the U.S. ambassador to Germany in the early 30s when Nazism just started to rear its head. And the book was fascinating about how an entire ancient civilization can go insane and accept what was happening there. And it made me wonder who was our man in Japan. And literally that's where hmm. asking that question led me to Joseph Grew, who was in Japan for 10 years, right up to the bombing of Pearl Harbor. So you, you said something in your first response about the, the Japanese army invading Manchuria 
um, without permission. You know, I'm I'm not an expert on Japan or on the period, and I confess, reading your book, you're 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 very fine and, and very informative book. I still found Japanese politics and keeping track of the various ministers and dynamics to be dizzy uh, over this period. You know, German politics, I imagine, post Hitler's rise is a little more straightforward. It's a story about Hitler and Hitler's cronies, and you know, it's, it's fundamentally a story about Hitler, right? Whereas yeah. Japanese politics is so complex during this period. Maybe you could just give us, give listeners, a bit of a, a survey of the major entities and, and and dynamics. Like, what's it important to know about Japanese politics in the 1930s? Well, that's a pretty big question. You're absolutely right. You put your finger on Joseph Gru's one of his main problems. Who are the players? Where are the where are the points of influence? Who can pull the levers of influence to make anything happen? It isn't a story about one man. In Japan, there were all of these different places and people who had power at different times. During his 10 years there, he dealt with 17 foreign ministers and 12 prime ministers. That's why there are so many names. And the, the cabinets kept falling, and I'll I'll explain a little bit why. It it goes back to the J Japan system of government. You you have you have the emperor who is the commander-in-chief, the spiritual leader, and a god, considered to be a god, literally by the Japanese people. So since he's a god, he can't make any decisions because he might make the wrong decisions. God don't do that. And to keep him as a god, you got to let him keep him out of the loop of responsibility. So he's the commander-in-chief, the leader of the nation, and he can't make any decisions on his own. You see a problem right there. Secondly, the, the way the Japanese government was set up, it was a parliamentary democracy at this point, it, based on the British model and the German model. And that meant that the prime minister was chosen not by the party's people, but by the emperor, who appointed someone based upon his senior palace advisors and political advisors said, you should name this person. That was always the person named. That's another peculiarity of, of the system. So the prime minister then gets to appoint the ministers, but not the minister of Navy and the minister of the army. So the army and the Navy get to, to appoint those ministers. The idea was keep the, keep the army and the Navy out of civilian affairs. But what happened is it gave them leverage in the cabinet. So whenever they didn't like a prime minister, let's say he wanted, he wanted policies friendly to the, to the West, one of those ministers could resign, the cabinet falls. Or let's say the prime minister, they don't like the prime minister in the first place at all, so they just refuse to appoint a minister. The cabinet falls. So you can see where Gru's going to have a big problem here. He's got the palace has, has power, prime, the prime minister and the cabinet has power, and the military have tremendous power. Where do you go as an ambassador to try to fix things? Yeah. And then within... The army, and well, I would say within the defense apparatus, then there are further, there's sort of wheels within wheels here, right? There's tension mm -hmm. between the army and the navy, and there maybe let's just start with that. What, what, what? As the period unfolds, and I guess Gru writes this this memo in which he he outlines right the 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 difference between a kind of blue water approach and a continental approach. What are the different views of the world between the Japanese army and the Japanese navy? Well, the the army was by far the more belligerent. Of the of the two services, and the and they were far more committed to this idea of imperial expansion throughout Asia. The navy wasn't that far behind, but the the navy also knew that that the army's plans were going to fall heavily on the navy because Japan's an island, and that means they're going to expand. There's oceanic warfare going to be 
occurring. So the Navy's a little bit behind the Army, it gets pulled along by the Army, resists the Army for quite a while in the 30s, and then succumbs to the Army's plans. So the Blue Water Plan was, let's, let's expand south in Asia and take China, Indochina, move to Hong Kong, Singapore, the Philippines. The Army, its traditional, Japan's traditional enemy was Russia. So the Army preferred to go into North China and Russia. And obviously, the, the Blue Water Plan became predominant by the end of the 30s, and that's what they did. So Gru arrives in Tokyo in 1932, right? The summer right. of 1932. Yeah. What, what is, what, talk about Tokyo. What, is, what does he see? What does he experience? What is it like to come to Japan at that time? That's a good question because it changed so much. When he came in 1932, the ties between the U.S. and Japan were still very tight and pervasive. There were all sorts of businesses that, that, that did business in both countries because Japan's main trading partner was the United States, exports and imports. So there were all sorts of consortiums. There were all sorts of, all sorts of linkages culturally, politically, that there were American movies, there were American restaurants, American dance halls, American music was tremendously popular. Movie star posters were everywhere in Japan, American movie star posters. Baseball became very popular in Japan, golf. These imports from the West were still very important Japan had adopted many Western ways, and not, not just these cultural things, but political systems, business systems, industrial ways of operating. So that was all still very prominent, but there was this undercurrent because of the invasion of Manchuria and this idea that Japan was this rising power and the United States had better stay on its side of the ocean and leave us our side of the ocean. If you do that, we'll all be fine. So that was the tension that was there from the beginning, which got greater and greater, obviously. And in general, as this war is playing out in Manchuria, what are Gru's relate? I was going to ask what are Gru's relations like with the Japanese government, but of course, this is this is itself something that evolves and evolves rapidly. The prime minister is assassinated right just before he shows up, or a prime minister is assassinated. Yeah, he's a Gru is on his way across the United States towards Japan, and he sees a headline in Chicago. Prime Minister, you know, guy assassinated and officers, you know, palaces in turmoil, people are arrested, so on. Yeah, that's what he stepped into. Yeah. And so he, he shows up and what is the what is what is the initial interaction like between him and the government? Is it is it still relatively positive? I mean, I assume we have a positive to negative trend over 10 years. I'm just curious about the major muscle <laughs> movements correct there. Assumption. Yeah. He the when he got there, he was he was intent upon repairing relations because the Secretary of State Henry Stimson had made some remarks about the invasion of Manchuria that this was not acceptable. The United States would never recognize any territory taken by force. So the Japanese press was had become very anti-American. The press controlled mostly by the military, by the way, mm -hmm. and got, that got worse and worse too. So when he got here, his got there, his job he thought was to explain. He called himself an interpreter between the countries, and he wanted to. If, if, in other words, Gru believed as a diplomat, if we only understood each other a little better, we could fix this because that's what diplomacy is. It's a mutual self-interest. We have many interests in common. It's foolish for us not to be friends as we always have been. So let's figure out how to become friends again. And he was really sincere about that. And the Japanese politicians 
understood that, even the military understood that, because it was sincere. So he did start to repair relations, but he, he also wrote back to Stimson and Hoover, there's no way they're leaving Manchuria. That's what you sent me here to do, to get them out of there, and they're not leaving. So we have to, that's a given, and now let's move on from there and see what happens. And, you know, obviously the, the Japanese army fighting in Manchuria and China takes a, a brutal approach to the local population. How does Gru sort of encounter those reports and what does he report back to Washington? What's his whole attitude to, to that and how does it evolve? Yeah, that's at first he didn't believe the the reports of atrocities that were occurring being being inflicted by the Japanese military. He because he believed his Japanese sources. He and he believed that these gentle people that are saying it's not true, I'm, I believe them because I want to believe them. The reports became so numerous that eventually grew, obviously accepted the facts. He was, he was good at changing his opinion. You know, he, he preferred optimism. He preferred the sunny side, but he did not ignore the darker side. And when he's, when he saw it often enough, he changed his view. He was flexible. So, you know, I I don't think a lot of Americans don't know much about the the second Sino-Japanese war and how horrifying it was. Just, just, I mean, the 10 to 20 million Japanese, Chinese civilians were killed in that, in that war. 10 to 20 million. That's a lot of people. And it was partly because the Japanese instituted this, this indiscriminate bombing of cities, which as we, as we know, became practiced. And that, that horrified, grew, it horrified America until it didn't. And we started using it too in Germany and in Japan. But the, the Japanese kind of started that, and Gru changed his view. And when he told the Japanese about what he was reading, the reports he was getting, they refused to believe it because their censored press and their censored radio, one radio station, told them it wasn't true. These were all, this was all propaganda and fake news intended to undermine the Japanese government. It was kind of a tough point for him. Yeah. And to, I mean, you, you you started to speak about it a little bit when you were talking about the emperor and, and politics more broadly. But, you know, what is what is the attitude towards Chinese civilians? And I guess you could say the attitudes towards warfare more generally. What does it say about the nature of the Japanese regime and the nature of Japanese politics at the time? Like it's not it's not exactly the same as fascism, right, in the sense or, or German, German and Italian fascism is the, in the sense that there is actually an emperor. Right. So it's not entirely a kind of modern performance of ancient things. There is actually something ancient knocking around Japanese politics. But just if you you could, just what what is driving all of this tremendous violence and and inhumanity? That's a really good question. And I'll tell you what I what I think. This is it's a very complicated psychological question. It's it's it, it, it appears it seems to me that the Japanese could justify anything they did if they did it in the name of their divine ruler. They believed that they were the the master race of Asia, as the Germans did in Europe, and they believed that anything that they needed to do to impose the emperor's imperial will on the people of Asia was justified. And if they refused to to accept the emperor's will peacefully, well, then then they, they deserved whatever they got. And so, in fact, they, they said things like that. Our whole mission is peace in Asia. We're doing everything we're doing for the sake of peace. <laughs> well, wow. you know, while they're demolishing massive areas of civilian neighborhoods in these, in these large Chinese cities, it's crazy. Yeah. 
Uh, you have this wonderful passage that you quote in the book from Barbara Tuckman, though she was, I guess she was Barbara Wertheim at the time. She was, yeah. she was writing under her maiden name, yeah. addressing just this point, right? And maybe say a little bit about that. She she writes a piece and grew, grew reads it. This is the author of The Guns of August, and she's, many of our listeners may know her, but she's a, a marvelous writer of, a, of, of the 20th century of military history and, and other affairs. Yeah, and she, I think she had spent, I think it was a year there. And and she was struck, as everyone was, very quickly by the concept of face and by the, by the Japanese ability to ignore facts and reality in order to preserve face and to preserve their, their necessary illusion about the Japanese people. And uh, Group quotes a long, a long passage from her book that I think it was in Foreign Affairs, the Foreign Affairs Journal, because he said it, it chimed exactly with what he was seeing and feeling and running into. What do you do? How do you, how do you become a, a diplomat to people who refuse to face facts, partly because they're not getting the facts, but even when Groove tried to show them all of these news articles and statistics, they refuse to believe it. It's a, it's a conundrum. Yeah. No, of course, the awful irony of it is in 1945, the same thing is going to happen to, to Tokyo, where, where Gru is attempting all this diplomacy that is, that's being inflicted on China right now. So let's let's kind of move forward through through the 30s, and you you, you document all of these sort of details of Japanese politics in the period and Gru's various responses to them. One of the major things is this this insurrection in 1936. What 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 happens there? What what are the results, and how do American views of of Japan shift, if at all, as a as a consequence? What happened is that the army staged a coup. A, a section of the army decided that the the current cabinet was not expanding fast enough, was not serious enough about the emperor's imperial destiny. And, and so they rose up and took part of central Tokyo, including military headquarters and some other things. So uh, they were convinced that this was the right thing to do. It's what's interesting, well, an interesting point to go back to one of your earlier questions, all of these, there were all these coup plots, coup plans in Germany at the time, you know, let's kill Hitler, let's get rid of some. And they were all from the left. Mm. Everything in Japan came from the right. It was, it was that our government is not right-wing enough. It's not expansionist enough. It's not you know going quickly enough through Asia to suit us. So the army, it was only about 1,500 people or so, but it was enough to, to stymie the city. And, uh, and after they had murdered the, the Lord Keeper of the, the Privy Seal, who was the emperor's main political advisor inside the palace, they, they murdered a couple of the main military people, they murdered a number of people. And then they stopped and they said, okay, now we're done. And we just want you to appoint a new cabinet and we'll be happy. And no, no more shots were fired. And there was a standoff. And then they finally, the, the emperor and the army rained down pamphlets saying, you are, you are embarrassing your families. You, if, if you want to retire with honor and save the, your face and the face of your family and the face of the emperor, you will go home. And almost all of the soldiers did because they were, they, their, their commanders had told them, we're, we're having a coup. And, and in Japan, that meant your boss says you're doing this, you're doing it. But when the biggest boss, the emperor says, go home, you go home. And except for the, the coup planners, and they thought they were going to get a show trial and they'd be able to pontificate about the purity of their motives and how this was necessary for the future of Japan. Instead, the army put them against the wall and shot them because they were afraid that these these young hotheads that they had kind of not tamped down, in fact, had often encouraged, 
were getting out of hand. So it looked for a moment, just for a brief, brief moment, as if the, the, the tide towards the right might be stemmed a little. And that's not what happened. Is there, your, your comment about left and right raises a, a question for me. I, I genuinely have no idea what the answer is. Um, you know, is there a left in, in Japan? I mean, granted, as you just pointed out, it's, it's, it's not very successful, but the Japanese-German alignment, the, the sort of the foundational axis agreement or agreement that becomes part of the axis, right, has to do with opposition to communism or the Soviet Union in some fashion. Correct me if I'm going wrong here. Like, what is the status of the left if, if there is a status of the left in Japan yeah. at this time? There is, there's no real presence of the left in Japan during these years. There, there are the communists were the bogeymen far the right, as they have been throughout history and many, many countries, as we know. They were the bogeymen in Japan because they had an emperor. The, the, they saw what the communists did to the czar, and so they thought, we're not letting those people near our emperor. So there were no, there, there was no strong presence of the left. What They were often, the moderates in Japan were as far left as you could, as you could go in Japan, and they were sometimes even called liberals, a total misnomer. And even the moderates supported the idea of J Japanese expansion into Asia, but they wanted to maintain good relations with the West. They didn't want a war, and that's what made them moderate. I mean, that's a pretty, you know, scanty definition of moderate, right? That's, that was the case. So in 1937, things really pick up pace. We have an invasion of China beyond Manchuria. We have Roosevelt giving a speech talking about quarantine lawless nations or lawless parts of the world. Talk, talk a bit about this year. Talk a bit about Gru and Gru's own evolution throughout these, these incidents. Well, despite Gru's best efforts, Japan kept drifting towards war, drifting towards aggression, and not, not just drifting, I mean, invading people. So this, this little incident in China at a bridge, a couple of patrols fired at each other. They thought they were going to settle it right then. Everybody wanted to settle it on both sides. And instead, this posturing occurred between Chiang Kai-shek and the Japanese military, and it, it escalated, escalated, and then it got to the point where Premier Konoye, who was the prime minister at the time, said, well, now we can't withdraw because we'll lose face. So it was, it was that sort of idiocy that just got multiplied. And then the military saw this as their great opportunity. They wanted China. That was the big the big plum in the middle of the fruit platter, you know, if we could get China, then we'll have all the, the natural resources we need. We'll have a vast market. We'll have everything that Japan needs to continue to expand. So Gru saw all this. I mean, he, he, he saw it coming. He tried to protest, complain, advise the U.S. government about what was coming, what he saw happening. And, uh, you know, it, it, it really was like he was trying to hold back the ocean and it, he couldn't. Yeah. What what happened with the and forgive me if I mispronounce this, but the 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 Penne, the ship that is caught, the American ship that's caught up in in all of this. Well, that was that's a that was a very important point. That's 1937, December 1937. The Chinese capital of Nanjing has just been overrun by the Japanese forces. That one of the worst atrocities of the 20th century. We all know about the rape of Nanjing, horrifying. People were fleeing the city. The Penne, the USS Penne, was a gunboat that patrolled the Yangtze because a little background that your listeners may not understand about the open door of China, which was which allowed, it was an agreement between 
uh, several Western powers, China and Japan, to allow commercial equality in China. And so that's why the USS Panay was there to protect US interest in China. The Panay went way upriver to avoid what was happening in Nanjing. It had flags flying from its mast. It had flags draped across its decks. It had flags painted on its sides. Nevertheless, Japanese bombers appeared out of the sky, bombed it, strafed it, sank it. As the crew members were trying to swim to shore, the bombers came back and strafed the survivors trying to reach the reeds. Then army gunboats came up and strafed the side of the boat when went aboard looking for survivors, no doubt, to finish them off. This looked this, and when Gru got this report, he thought, we better start packing. This is going to be a declaration of war. But he tried to, you know, he, he did what diplomats do, and he, he tried to be the referee and the conveyor of negotiations, and it worked. To, like, to the great relief of, of Japan and the United States, Japan did not want a war. These out-of-control military pilots were, had almost precipitated the war. The Japanese said, we didn't know it was a U.S. boat. Now, this was a complete fabrication, obvious fabrication, but that's what the Japanese struck, stuck to. They did pay compensation to the U.S. They did penalize the, the people in, who were supposedly in control of these pilots. So that by this point, our Secretary of State was Cordell Hull. He was satisfied with this. Both sides were satisfied. The Japanese promised it was never going to happen again. It immediately began happening again. Yeah. It, well, and actually, since you raised it, we should talk a bit about Gru's relationships in the in the in the other direction. So the key players there being Hull, obviously the Secretary of State, and then he knew he knew FDR. Maybe we should talk a bit about that. And then that is to say, he knew him socially long before they were statesman. And then there's this other figure that you write about in the book who who's very significant, Hornback. So talk a bit about dynamics in Washington and Gru's relationships there and how, how they affect the situation. Yeah, that's a really interesting part of the story. He, Gru and, and Roosevelt knew each other from Groton and Harvard. Roosevelt was two years behind him at both places, and they'd both been on the Crimson and so on. They, they called each other Joe and Frank, but they, they weren't good friends. They were acquaintances. And when Roosevelt came in, Gru wasn't certain that he put in his diary. I'm not sure, I'm not sure Frank has what, what it's going to take to guide the country through this period. He turned out to be a, a massive admirer of, of Roosevelt. He liked the way Roosevelt handled foreign policy and handled the country. Now, Hornbeck and Hull, that's a different matter. Hull was his direct boss. Hornbeck was at first the chief Far East advisor. He was, he was head of the Far, the Far Eastern desk, and then he became Hull's chief advisor on the, on the Far East. Hornbeck never was a diplomat. He had a, a doctorate in history, I believe. He taught in China for a couple of years, came home, and he was, he was a very intelligent, opinionated, stubborn know-it-all, and he disliked the Japanese intensely. And the Japanese diplomats, this was well known among the Japanese diplomatic community in Washington. So that was, that was a, a problem. He's the chief forest advisor. He's got Hull's ear. On the other hand, Gru's trying to send Hull reports from on the ground about what's happening. Hornbeck often discounts these reports, calls them absurd, says that Gru has gone native. He's an appeaser. So there began to be tension as the 30s developed between the State Department and between Gru. Gru never 
showed that to the Japanese. He never talked about it. And he certainly never misrepresented U.S. policy to the Japanese government. But it was there. And it's a very interesting part of my story. So as the as the forties begin, there's there's a sense of well, actually, you know what? Let's let's talk about 30, 38, 39, and then forty. I want to skip that. So there's there's acceleration all around. There's war in Europe. What is Gru's attitude actually towards the lead up to to war in Europe and to diplomatic efforts there? The policy of appeasement. You, you know, Hornbeck thinks he's an appeaser. What is his attitude towards actual appeasement happening in in Europe? Like many many people who had experienced World War One, as Gru had in Berlin, he was relieved at the agreement that was reached in Munich. But he also had no delusions that this meant that Hitler was going to be satisfied. He called, he said it was, it was, you know, it was diplomacy at gunpoint. And he said, this is just going to make Hitler more hungry Then it's not going to appease. It's not going to satisfy him. So he, 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 he saw Hitler for what he was and he suspected that war was coming. And then of course it did. The, as far as how it affected the Japanese, which is an interesting part of the story, one of the things that that, I, that surprised me, there were so many things, because I was ignorant about a lot of this stuff, is that the, the Japanese and German alliance was was not tight. It was not close. They The Japanese had their own agenda. The Germans were constantly trying to pull the Japanese into their agenda, and the Japanese resisted. They They did not want to have a military alliance with Germany that would that would force them to enter a war because Hitler decided to do something. They didn't want it to be in the European war. They wanted to focus on taking Asia for Japan. So I'm getting lost in my answer here a little bit, but when Hitler started to, and I'm moving from 1939 to 1940, sure. you know, they had that interregnum where you had the invasion of Poland, September 1st, the war begins, war's declared, but not much happens until April of, of 1940. And that's when the Blitzkrieg plows through, plows through Western Europe into Paris in June of 1940. And the Japanese military became delirious with this, that, that if Hitler's doing this in Europe, why aren't we doing it over here? The, France is conquered. Britain can't do anything. They're under siege. They're going to they're fall any day now. Let's take everything we want right now. And that's so that's what Gru was trying to deal with. Do not do that. Do not allow yourself with with the Germans. They're going to lose eventually and you're going to be alone and you can't afford that. Yeah, that's fairly prescient. So we and we also in this period, there's there's sort of this, you know, uptick in alarmed, <laughs> alarmed messages from Gru back to Washington. You know, talk a bit about that traffic. And then you you single out one message in particular, I guess, from September of 1940, the green the green light telegram. So what's what's the character of Bruce communiques back to Washington during this period? And what's the what's the green light telegram? Well, he as a diplomat, Gru's main mission, of course, is to keep the peace. That That's his first priority. But then in comes this new foreign minister named Matsuoka Yosuke. And he is a fan of Hitler, and he's, he's <laughs> some people think he's crazy. He's certainly not like most Japanese. He's very chatty, gregarious, and openly ambitious. And he's, he loves the Axis, and he's a blusterer and a threatener and a bully. And Gru, after meeting with him, and he only came in in July, I believe, of 1940. By September, Gru realized, I can't deal with this guy. There's no way diplomacy is going to work with this guy in charge of Japan's foreign policy direction. And he writes what he calls his green light telegram because all of his other telegrams had been red lights. Let's be cautious. 
Let's not say anything that's too inflammatory. Let me work over here. But the green light was, I can't do anything with this guy. We need to start really thinking about other modes that may be necessary. Build up the Navy, build up the Army. Let's, let's, let's even think about embargoes, which he had always been against because it's a, it's a, it's a path towards war. So Matsuoka changed his mind about the possibilities in Japan. And as, as we get to 1941 uh, and all these things, you know, begin to come to pass, right? We have, we have an asset freeze in July. We have the, the embargo in August, but even before that, right, grew is, grew is alarmed about the possibility of a Japanese attack on America or American assets, at least. What, what is he saying to Washington? What, what, is, what, are, what are the nature of his warnings? Well, he starts saying, basically, he, and he said it several times in different ways, that Japan is perfectly capable of striking with sudden, dramatic violence. You need to believe that that's true, because Hornbeck, in particular, and most people in America did not believe Japan would dare to attack the United States, that we have all the resources, we have, we're wealthy, we're big, we'll crush them. And Gru is saying, trying to tell them, you're wrong. If they get desperate and they need to save face or they need to expand or they feel like if we don't strike first, you're going to crush us, they will strike. And nobody believed him until, really until November of 1941. So he, mm-hmm. but he sends the, and by the way, he was saying the same thing to the Japanese. He was saying, you can't keep bombing American properties and interests. You can't keep doing these things. And when he, when a new foreign minister would come in, Gru would hand him this thick sheaf incidents, bombings of missional schools. There were over 300 incidents by, the, by like 1940. He kept telling him, you can't keep doing this. If, and if you kill any more Americans, you're going to have a war and it's not going to be good for Japan. We'll kill you. We'll crush you. And Japan thought, you know, no, the American people are isolationists. They're pacifists. They will not allow Roosevelt to declare war. So uh, we feel pretty good that we're going to be able to get away with everything that we're doing. And for a long time, they were right. And not to, not to sound a conspiratorial note, and it's not, it's not really a conspiratorial note because of the, the timing and the nature of the warning, but he's warning about Pearl Harbor as a target in the, at the start of 1941, right? You're sort of passing along rumors. I mean, yeah. it's kind of an obvious observation, but it's still striking. It is striking. It's a, it's a very interesting note. He, he heard a rumor. It came from one of the ministers. It, it was passed to a third secretary in our, in our embassy at a party, and it got passed on to Gru, and so Gru passed it along. That, that he had overheard, he had heard rumors that, that Jet, Japan was planning to strike Pearl Harbor. And Gru thought, that's highly unlikely, but I'm, that's what I heard. I'm going to pass it along to you. The State Department said, yeah, we agree. It's highly unlikely. Well, they passed it along to the Army and Navy. They had already considered it and decided it was highly unlikely that if Japan did strike anywhere, it would probably be Singapore, Malaysia, the Philippines, Hong Kong. So nobody really took it that seriously for a long time. And so you you alluded to November is the time when Washington starts to starts to focus in on the problem. What 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 actually is happening in November? What is happening in Washington? What is Gru saying and mm-hmm. doing? Let me, let me back up for just a minute and sure. remind you that another thing that I didn't know was that we had begun, we had decrypted all diplomatic traffic, Japanese diplomatic traffic between Tokyo and Washington, Tokyo and Berlin, Tokyo and everywhere. And that started happening early in, in 1941. We were getting Hull and Roosevelt were getting all the cable traffic. 
that's unbelievable. I mean, they were, so and all Japanese strategies, plans, everything, Hull was reading them. And so they, Gru didn't know this. They, they, they felt they couldn't tell Gru this was such a valuable source of intel. They couldn't risk letting Gru know in case our traffic was being read by the Japanese. So Gru was unaware of that. Hull, in other words, knew a lot of things that Gru didn't know, just as Gru knew things that Hull didn't perceive. So by the time you get to November, when Hull really starts sitting up straight in his chair is when the diplomatic traffic starts telling the ambassador in Washington, you're going to get a code word in one of these in one of these dispatches. And when you see that code word, burn the code book, burn one of the code books and one of the decryption machines. And all of a sudden it becomes clear that Japan is planning something and they want to cover their, you know, they, they want to not leave any tracks behind if possible. And that's when Gru goes to the cabinet meeting. I mean, Gru Hull goes to a cabinet meeting and says, Japan might attack at any moment, which is what Gru had been sort of warning them about for a while. Yeah. Give, give us your opinion, your analysis on a big question here, if you would. I mean, I, I've I visited Tokyo once. I, I went to the, the museum associated with the shrine there, Yasukuni. And, you know, it, it to this day is a, we'll just say it's a right of center count of, of Japanese history and the Japanese military. And in it, you know, if you go to the sort of the room devoted to the lead up to the war, it basically says, you know, Roosevelt embargoed Japan and forced our hand. And so we very reasonably and understandably attacked America. Um, on one level, it's a bit outrageous. And I was indeed outraged in the moment looking at it. On another level, it's hard to say, right, that the embargo plays no role in Japanese thinking. So how should... How should we think about this? <laughs> now, should we think about it? Well, to me, it's 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 very clear that I mean that you hear that you still hear that in Japan. It's, it's in the museum. I, I heard it from a guy at the Huntington Library once, a Japanese guy doing research that you know the war was all FDR's fault. We kept telling the Japanese, if you do this, we're going to respond with this, and the Japanese would do it, and we would respond. We would we would you know stop the commerce treaty so you're no longer a favored nation. The Japanese were, what? why did you do that? What did we do? Well, we told you we were going to do something and then you did it anyway. And it kept going like that through 1940, 1941. The Japanese, the embargo occurred because Japan invaded Southern Indochina. And, and we had told them, if you do that, that's going to be the end of talks and we're going to have to take strong action. And they went, oh, okay. And then they invaded. They were, and they were shocked. Why? Why, do you, why would you embargo oil? You're, this is just this is very dangerous for Japan. Well, that's the point. It's an economic sanction. We were trying everything we could short of war to make them alter their path. And instead, and this was true throughout the 1930s and still true, Japan considered themselves the victims always. We're the victims of an embargo. We're the victims of a of a of a freeze. We're the victims. You know, it's like. You don't seem to get it that, yeah, you brought this on yourself. And the Yakasuni Shrine, let me just make one point about that. In the 1970s, 14 or 17 Class A war criminals were inducted into that shrine by Japan, including Tojo and Matsuoka as Showa martyrs. Showa was the era of Hirohito. They're in that shrine as honorable Shoah martyrs. Can you imagine that in Germany with Goebbels, Goring? I mean, it's it's inconceivable, and yet Japan did that. It's a there's something odd about this the psychology there. Yeah. 
And then I want to ask you a specific question because it, it was it was very important to Gru in his in his in his postmortem of of the events of forty one. But the prime minister, the Japanese prime minister, was seeking some sort of summit with with Roosevelt, right? Throughout this period, and obviously it didn't come to pass. You know, so what was Gru's opinion about you know why that was a missed opportunity? And, and do you do you agree? I mean, were things actually avertable? I agree that. That with Gru, that it, there was an opportunity that was missed. Whether it would have made difference, a difference in the long run, I doubt. But it, the point, the Gru's point was that that at least we should try, and that was, I think, his biggest disappointment with American policy. That was you're talking about a secret meeting that was proposed by Prime Minister Cornier between himself and Roosevelt on Amer in American territory. And no prime minister of Japan had ever left the country, certainly not to talk to a potential enemy. Konya said, I will do this. He had the support of the army and the Navy to see what would happen. And Hull basically smothered it in the crib. He made all of these preconditions before the U.S. would agree to have such a meeting. Gru kept saying, you can't have preconditions. It's, it's Japanese psychology, Japanese face. They can't accept preconditions because it'll... It'll, it's, it's an insult to, to face. Just go there, listen to them, and if we don't like it, we can find more things to embargo, greater penalties for them, but let's try it. And um, Hull, by that point, for very good reasons, completely distrusted the Japanese, didn't believe that, that anything that they said, and killed it. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I, I mean, there's part of me, I, I, I kind of want to bring this up to the, to the present day and solicit your, your opinions about contemporary applications of what you've learned here in this research. I mean, there's part of me is sympathetic to Hall, as you describe him just now. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it doesn't seem like there's a whole heck of a lot to trust there and a whole heck of a lot to, to respect. And yet at the same time, you do end up in this dynamic, as you, as you put it very well, like, does the embargo play a role in the Japanese decision to attack? Undoubtedly. But did the was the embargo some aggressive act of American statecraft originating from a vacuum? Absolutely not. It was, okay. a, it was a, in its way, a, a quite reasonable response to Japanese actions. And you're in this cycle of escalation with a hostile power that sees itself through the lens of victimhood and an American liberal power that's struggling to understand an adversary. And, you know, that's, there are, I'm going to keep drawing this analogy out. There, there are elites who are aware that war is a distinct possibility and are trying to prepare the nation for it, but the nation at large is certainly hoping there won't be a war. You can see where I'm going with all of this. Like what 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 can we learn from what you've written here and from what you've learned that's applicable to the US situation with China today, which unfortunately it's hard to put a year on it, but there are parallels, distinct parallels between the two situations. Yeah, there are. Uh, what you can learn, I guess, is is to try to keep talking, try to keep the channels open, try to to meet, try to combine diplomacy with preventative measures that will make the other side think and stop. That's, that was Gru's hope that he said diplomacy by itself can't do it. It has to be backed up by plausible penalties. And he didn't mean war or attack. He just meant any sort of penalties that would make that, that other power stop its aggressive policies. And the, the problem is that when you're dealing with true believers, Diplomacy isn't enough. It just isn't going to, and that's and, and it turned out that the embargo wasn't enough. The freeze wasn't enough. The ending the, the commerce treaty wasn't enough. Nothing was enough to stop 
these fanatical people who thought that they had a destiny, despite their, their war planning, which told them we're not going to be able to last more than a year or maybe two. We won't be able to do it. And they did it anyway, because they thought that the United States, the United States was was soft and would would once we bombed, once they bombed Pearl Harbor, we would say, let's go to the negotiating table because we're scared. So I guess knowing your opponent is the other thing. Gru was very intent upon understanding Japan, trying to convey his understanding to Washington and to convey the American perspective to Japan. But if no, if if the sides aren't listening or think that you're appeasing or think that you are making threats that the United States isn't going to follow through on, and if nobody believes you, then there you are. This, well, this, this prompts kind of a, a huge, but sort of obvious pro- follow-up question, which is, it's a big question, so maybe it's a discussion for another time, but accepting everything you just, you just said in principle, you know, what was, what was the practical mix of diplomatic outreach and sort of hard policy response that would have averted a war in the Pacific. You know, it's not, I, I have no idea. I, mean, I, I don't know if you do, but I mean, that I does don't. seem like, I do, ho- I do hope there are some people out there looking into that with a sense of urgency because it seems like a very relevant question. I think that it is the question for your podcast, the, the school of war, what do we learn here? I hope we learn that you, you have to have both diplomacy and measures that will, that will discourage aggression. But the other thing that you learn is no matter how good those things are, they aren't going to be enough to prevent war if you're faced with a group of, 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 of absolute believers in their, in their mission who can't, be, who can't be swayed by mutual self-interest, by, you know, by in rational enlightenment, by, by the things that diplomacy depends upon to keep, to keep the peace. And that's what happened with Japan. It's, it happened with Germany too. I mean, it's. I don't. I don't think there's a way to avoid some of these. Some of these really strong fanatical movements. Steve Kemper, author most recently of "Our Man in Tokyo: An American Ambassador in the Countdown to Pearl Harbor," really fascinating discussion. I really appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you, Aaron. This is a Nebulous Media production. Find us wherever you get your podcasts.